0: It's our pleasure today to welcome yet another scholar to our campus. I'm going to ask Dr. Kevin Cherry, uh, Associate Professor of Political Sciences, to introduce John Insurrection. Dr. Cherry. Despite their long, albeit interrupted, friendship, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams had significant political disagreements such as whether to celebrate July 3rd, on which the Continental Congress voted in favor of Adam's resolution declaring independence, or July 4th, on which it signed the declaration, drafted largely by Jefferson, explaining why it had done so. As a resident of the state of Virginia, I am legally obliged to acknowledge Jefferson seems to have won, and so we celebrate the 4th rather than the 3rd of July. But among their pronounced differences were some areas of agreement. And one such area was their mutual appreciation of Marcus Tullius Cicero, as an exemplar of Republican leadership. Jefferson identified Cicero alongside Aristotle and Locke as the sources of public right on which he based the Declaration of Independence. Adams stated more boldly that all the ages of the world have not produced a greater statesman and philosopher combined. The founders knew far more about the statesman than they did the philosophers. But that philosopher was one of the earliest sources for the tradition of natural law that moves through Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, culminating in Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham city jail. W.E.B. Du Bois also drew on Cicero's conception of the liberal arts as the basis for a transformative kind of humanistic education. So we have Cicero the statesman, Cicero the philosopher, and today's speaker, Professor Jonathan Zarecki of the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, offers us a chance to reflect on both sides of the Ciceronian identity. Professor Zarecki is associate professor in the Department of Classical Studies at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, having done his graduate work at the University of Florida. His scholarly research focuses on the politics of the Roman Republic, and in particular, the thought of Cicero. His book, Cicero's Ideal Statesman in Theory and Practice, was published by Bloomsbury in 2014. It's on sale in the lobby. It was well received by political theorists and by classicists who are much harder to satisfy. (laughs) Central to this book is Cicero's attempt to define what it is to be a good reader, a topic as timely now as it was then, and certainly a fit subject for a John Marshall lecture. Dr. Zarecki is a committed teacher. He is an active scholar who frequently publishes articles. And some of his recent research is increasingly relevant to me on the virtues of old age. He is a servant to the scholarly community as a frequent book reviewer and an excellent writer. And I shall conclude with a little bit of a warning. They recently discovered graffiti among the ruins of Pompeii, which reads, You will like Cicero or you will be whipped. I should inform you that, quite apart from his professional expertise, Professor Zurecki serves as an officer in the Sixth Legion of the Ferrata Fidelis Constance, a Roman living history group based out of South Carolina. I believe he comes unarmed, (laughs) but it's better to be safe than sorry. So please join me in welcoming (laughs) Professor Serrati Higgins.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Palazzolo, uh, and Dr. Price for the invitation, uh, and Dr. Cherry for that exceedingly warm uh, introduction. Uh, and especially also to you, the audience, for coming to listen to me talk on a Friday afternoon about a work that is near and dear to my heart, uh, Cicero's De Republica. The story of the De Republica is full of mystery and intrigue. Uh, The De Republica, translatable as either on the commonwealth or on the state, though for simplicity today, I'm going to simply leave the title in Latin, is the most comprehensive work of political theory from one of Rome's most original political theorists. Now that alone would make the topic worth study, but the history of this text is also colored by the fall of the Roman Republic, the Christianization of Rome, mysterious vanishings, a centuries-long international search through libraries and monasteries, and a scholar taking a random second look at a manuscript that has been locked away in the Vatican archives for over 200 years. 2019 marks the 200th anniversary of that scholar taking a second look at that manuscript. Which he found contained the only surviving text of Cicero's De Republica known in the world. And today I'll be talking with you not only about the content of the De Republica, but also the story of its loss and its recovery. The product of the Order's statesman Marcus Tullius Cicero's long career in public office, combined with his deep knowledge of and love for philosophy, the De Republica was an important influence on Roman thought for nearly four centuries from its composition in the late 50s B.C. until the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Its importance wasn't limited to politicians or philosophers. Historians, grammarians, pagans, and even Christians found much to admire in Cicero's thought. And as a scholar whose uh, research is centered on Cicero's life and works, the De Republic is particularly important to me for several reasons. It is Cicero's most explicit treatment of the Roman Constitution. It provides contemporary insight into the social and political problems of the faltering Republic. And it provides a matrix of effective Republican leadership in the form of the concept of the ideal statesman, known as the rector republicae or director of the state. (sighs) The text is surely invaluable for the study of the political culture and history of Republican Rome. But it still provides much food for thought to modern audiences, not only about the purpose and the structure of government, but also about statesmanship. And in the time I have for you today, I'd like to tell the story of this text, from its composition in the 50s, to its disappearance in the 7th century, its rediscovery in the 19th, its reception in the 19th and 20th centuries, and the especially important revival of interest in its teaching in the 21st. I'll close with a bit of an explication of the ideal statesman, particularly his virtues and his duties, and then with a few summary conclusions about the De Republica*, uh, the importance of the De Republica* for the study of the Roman world. So let's move on now to the contents of the De Republica* and briefly outline its theories on government leadership. As I mentioned, the De Republica is the earliest explicitly politically Roman work to have survived. Cicero, of course, wrote a number of things on politics, in many of his philosophical treatises and even in his speeches, most famous of the processio. But the De Republica represents the fullest expression of Cicero's political philosophy. The prominent Ciceronian scholar Ingo Gildenbrand has stated that the De Republica quote, is not just about, it simply is politics. Written in the second half of the 50s BC, it's the culmination of Cicero's career up to that point, a career that had included holding nearly every office in the Roman government and recognition as Rome's greatest living orator. The work was written after a very difficult part of his career. Machinations by his political enemies had gotten him exiled from Rome, and upon his return, he was forced into a quasi-retirement, during which he embarked on a trilogy of works that dealt with Roman politics, these three works here. The first, on the Order, discussed the training, duties, and personality of an Order, with a focus on the political and social importance of oratory in a functioning Republican government. The second work, the De Republica, is our focus today. And the third was on the laws, a work that was meant to be a continuation in some fashion of the argument of De Republica, in which Cicero discusses the ideal laws of the ideal state that he discussed in the De Republica. However, <clears throat> That's a problematic work for a number of reasons, which we don't have time to get into today. I will be focusing on the De Republica today, uh, though I would recommend reading all three of these to get a full picture of Cicero's political philosophy. Now, the De Republica was composed as a dialogue between the great Roman general and statesman Publius Cornelius Scipio Aemilianus and several of his close friends. It was set in the year 129 BC, shortly before Scipio's rather suspicious death. And the discussion ranges far and wide, with the character of Scipio standing in for Cicero himself. The introduction of the work is missing due to the state of the manuscript, as I'll discuss in a moment. But the beginning of the dialogue, which survives, written in Cicero's own voice, says that it will be, quote, an argument about the nature of the Republic, and that it will have both philosophical and practical value, because Cicero was himself a philosopher and a statesman. Cicero further explains in the surviving Introduction that while the practical cannot be separated from the philosophical, the practical always supersedes the philosophical. And those who protect the state through their forethought and their authority are far superior to those who do not participate in political life. And this statement is key to understanding the entire work. Throughout the De Republica, Cicero focuses on the need for both practical wisdom and the willingness and opportunity to exert that wisdom on behalf of the Republic, philosophy and practicality combined together. And we will see shortly how that wisdom and willingness manifests itself into this concept of the ideal statesman. So following the introduction, unfortunately, which uh, which is lost, Cicero divided the work into six chapters, or what we now call books. The first two books are the most complete, and the ones most studied, and the ones Dr. Cherry's students read this week. In these books, Cicero, via the speakers in the dialogue, reviews the various forms of government and concludes that the Roman government, what he calls the mixed constitution of the three simple forms of government, monarchy aristocracy, and democracy, is the most perfect form ever designed by mankind. After concluding that the government is, the Roman government, is at least theoretically perfect, the dialogue turns in the third book to a discussion of the value of justice in both the founding and continuing stability of the state. The next two books, which are extremely fragmentary, uh, presumably presented a complete picture of the ideal statesman through an argument about the importance of maintaining traditional moral standards through education of the youth and the role of the ideal statesman in upholding the laws of the state. The final book, a long philosophical and cosmological exposition of the origins, characters, and duties of the ideal statesman, has long been known to scholars under the name of the Dream of Scipio for its depiction of Scipio's ascent into heaven to learn about the true, universal purpose of statesman and statesmanship. So, so much for the organization of the Republica. It is, perhaps from that very, very short summary, uh, easy to see the importance of this work for studying the late Republic, given its rather comprehensive coverage of politics, from the micro-view of the individual statesman to the macro-view of the very nature of Roman government. Cicero himself viewed the De Republica, particularly its explication of the ideal statesman, as a practical template worthy of contemplation, especially during the civil war between Caesar and Pompey, which broke out shortly after its publication. Despite the philosophical nature of much of the discussion, and its indebtedness to Plato and the skeptical academy that Cicero held a lifelong adherence to, Cicero felt that the work had practical applications, if only for himself, in early February 49, for example, Cicero wrote a very long letter to his dear friend Atticus, claiming that he was spending all of his time pondering, and you can see the quote here, how much virtue there is in that man whom I have described diligently enough in the De Republica. And while I'll be saying a lot more about the ideal statesman at the end, I should like to stress here that I, in contradiction to other scholars, believe that Cicero viewed this work as both philosophy and practical politics, especially since Cicero kept returning to the ideal statesman as a practical template for his own actions during the last period of political resurgence following Julius Caesar's assassination in March of 44. Time prohibits me unfortunately from delving too deeply into that time of Cicero's career, but it will suffice to say that much of what Cicero has to say about statesmanship in the Philippics, those masterful series of invectives uh, and speeches against Mark Antony that he composed in the last year of his life can be traced back to this work, the De Republica. Unfortunately for the Roman Republic, and not least for Cicero himself, his attempt to bring, the pra- to bring into practice the political theory of the De Republica was not successful, and Cicero was assassinated in 43 BC. Yet another one of the casualties of the civil conflict that broke out between uh, Caesar- uh, following Caesar's assassination in 44. But Cicero's death in 43 at the hand of Mark Antony's thugs did not diminish the popularity of his work. Even the Emperor Augustus, who had acquiesced to Cicero's murder when he was but the young Octavian, considered Cicero's works to be the products of a learned man and the lover of his country. The sheer volume of work that Cicero produced, and the amount that has survived, is, is frankly staggering. 52 of his 88 known speeches have come down to us, as have six works on rhetoric another uh, all or a part of eight works of philosophy, and 37 of the 72 known collections of letters, numbering some 914 letters total, both from Cicero uh, to others, from people like Brutus, Caesar, Pompey, to him, uh, and a number to his best friend, Atticus. Cicero thus became, for uh, obvious reasons, one of the canonical authors in the Roman educational corpus. Now, while Cicero's speeches were always studied for their rhetoric and his philosophy for its ethics, the De Republica, despite its panegyric of a Republican form of government, became one of, if not the most cited, of Cicero's works under the emperors, especially in the 4th and 5th centuries. It resonated particularly strongly with the Christian fathers, especially Lactantius, Ambrose, Jerome, and St. Augustine. And we must, in fact, credit the early church fathers with the survival of the text at all, with pride of place going to Augustine, the bishop of Hippo, and perhaps the most important Christian theologian philosopher of late antiquity. In fact, while Augustine was well acquainted with a number of Cicero's works, he cited the Dei Republica more than any other work of Cicero's, though often simply as a source of criticism for the pagan past. Augustine found a lot of value However, as he wrote in 408 to Nectarius, a pagan from the city of Kalma in Algeria, begging him to consider for a moment the books of Cicero's De Republica, once you drank in that state of mind of the most benevolent citizen, that there is no measure or end of looking for the fatherland for good men, and you can see that he has a particular focus on virtues and ethics. Augustine's interest was primarily religious and philosophical, however, not political. He seems to have been drawn to the text partially because of its critique of the Roman state and its warnings about the dangers of fault or morals and of good men doing nothing. Thus, the figure of the ideal statesman was of little to no interest to Augustine. This is not (coughs) entirely surprising, perhaps, given the theocratic monarchy that ruled Rome during Augustine's life. In fact, the De Republica and its argument in favor of the mixed constitution form a significant part of the opposition arguments in Augustine's City of God. While Augustine's prolific engagement with the De Republica was responsible for preserving a significant portion of the text, Isidore of Seville, the great early medieval encyclopedist of the early 6th century, also quoted extensively from the De Republica in his wildly popular work, The Etymologies. And here we first encounter problems with the preservation of the text. While Augustine and Isidore seem to have been able to consult a complete copy of the work, the De Repubblica abruptly disappears from the literary tradition in the West in the 6th century. While it was still being copied at least in one place uh, into the 7th century in one monastery in northern Italy, all references after Augustine and Isidore seem to be secondhand, as if the authors did not have access to a complete copy of the text. And in fact, most of the references from the mid-5th century outside of Isidore until the uh, rediscovery of the text in the 19th century are paraphrases or citations of earlier authors, such as Augustine, the shadowy early 5th century author Macrobius, who wrote a detailed commentary on the Dream of Scipio, the sixth book of the Deir Hulanda, and the late antique primarian Notius Marcellus, who preserved fragments from a number of lost works in his massive encyclopedia, and who was especially fond of the De Republica. And in fact, most critical editions of the De Republica will have a little notation after the text saying "n.o.m." in that this text only survives in Nonius. But while the text seems to have been widely available in the fourth and fifth centuries, the centuries that follow contain nothing. No new citations, no author showing first-hand familiarity with the text, no engagement at all, it seems, with Cicero's greatest work of political philosophy. The sole surviving manuscript of the text, about which I will get into in a moment, was copied in the seventh century, as we can tell from the style of handwriting, though the text they're copying is most likely from the fifth, as we can tell uh, from the matches to the textual tradition excuse me, of Augustine. Now, this evidence suggests that the De republica was not being recopied widely, if at all, and that the scholars great center of learning of Bovio in northern Italy, were working with manuscripts that were centuries old already. Why there is such a tenuous manuscript tradition of this text is one of the most interesting questions of the De Repubblica. But sadly, it is a question that will forever remain unanswered. Barring new discoveries, and perhaps the exciting work being done with manuscripts in Herculaneum will yield, hopefully, someday, another copy of the text. But that's not to say that scholars were ignorant of the work or indifferent to the fact that they could no longer find it. The De Republica was well-known in literary circles during the time of Charlemagne, though only through the context of Augustine's uh, critique. And while scholars could refer to the many references in Augustine, Isidore, and Macrobius, there was a great desire throughout Europe to find a copy of the complete text. In 986, Gerbert of Aberloc, the, the future Pope Sylvester II, wrote to a former pupil at a Benedictine monastery in Fleury in central France to please include a copy of the De Republica in the list of works he had once sent to him. There is, however, no indication he received anything. In the early 12th century, the English historian William of Malmesbury attempted to recreate the entire text by collating together all of the references he could find in other works, almost all of which he then took from St. Augustine. Poggio, the great humanist manuscript hunter of the 15th century, exchanged letters with the German polymath Nicholas of Cusa about their shared desire to find a complete copy. To Poggio's great delight, Nicholas promised him, yes, I have a complete copy, and I will send it to you right away. To Poggio's great disappointment, however, Nicholas simply sends him a copy of The Dream of Scipio, which was widely known and widely copied throughout Europe. Further attempts to recreate the text by the collation of fragments were undertaken in the 15th century by the English scholars William Gray and William Worcester, the later of whom was particularly interested, perhaps for the first time, in the political philosophy found in the work. A further final attempt was made by the 16th century French printer and scholar Robert Estienne, who published the first collection of the fragments on their own. But despite this international hunt for a complete copy of the work, It was not until 1819 that the Dei Republica returned to the public eye. On November 7th of that year, Angelo Mai, former head of the Ambrosian Library in Milan, took up his new position as a custodian of the Vatican Library. And Mai had already established a reputation as a bloodhound for previously lost texts, and had discovered and published quite a few works, including several of Cicero's speeches that had been unknown previously might have been so successful, mainly through his expertise at using palimpsests. Palimpsests are manuscripts on which the original text has been erased, scraped off, uh, and the pages reused to copy other things. And you can see here copies of two manuscripts from the medieval period. And if you'll notice, you can see on the top here one text, and then below another set of writing. And literally, the way these work is after copying, if you wanted to reuse it, you had to take a penknife and scrape individually off every letter and go through and then reuse the text. And you can see that sometimes they even took the pages and turned them sideways and recopied. Both the Vatican Museum and the Ambrosian Library had a number of manuscripts of these type, and Mai had even studied them in the hopes for finding lost or entirely new works from antiquity. Mai had been on the job at the Vatican for less than a month when he made his most famous discovery. In a letter dated de- de- December 23, 1819, Mai wrote to his patron, Pope Pius VII, that, quote, I have discovered the lost books of Cicero's De Republica, written in magnificent unsealed letters of a better time. There are 300 pages, each of two columns, and I am happy to say that all are legible. The search for the De Republica had finally ended. A century later, Cardinal Giovanni Mercati, who published the first photographic uh, record of the manuscript, called it a Christmas present for the Pope. And what a present it was, because to this day, the manuscript that Cardinal Mai found in 1819, known today simply as Vaticanus Latinus 5757, remains the single copy of this work in the entire world. And it's kind of no wonder that it remained hidden for so long. Uh, the text of the De Republica in the Vatican Manuscript was overwritten by a scribe copying out, fittingly enough, Augustine, specifically his commentary on the Psalms, uh, Psalms 119-140. We know that it was written at Boggio, one of the most important medieval centers of learning. And here on the screen, you can see uh, two pictures of one of the pages of the remaining manuscript. On the left, you see in the, uh, how Mai would have seen it in natural light, and on the right, how you see it when viewed under infrared. And you can see that there are two columns of very large text underneath the much smaller text of St. Augustine's commentary. And remember that this was found in 1819 when they didn't have access to spectrography, lighting of this sort. Mai simply had to read this through candlelight in the Vatican archives. Uh, And if you are interested, uh, it is actually held and digitized now, and you can go and read the entire manuscript all 300 pages of English. Um, unfortunately, with this manuscript, only about a quarter to one-third of the De Republica survives. A large part of the sixth book, That Dream of Scipio, was transmitted separately, as uh, in the commentary of Macrobius, and is not included in this manuscript. When I found the manuscripts of the Dei Republica, all the pages were completely out of order. It had been disassembled (coughs) and reassembled carelessly, as needed for the recopying. But the bound manuscript that he found has now been disassembled and reassembled in the proper order because the commentary on the Psalms is very widely available, and it is not as important to have as the Dei Republica. Despite the fact, now this is very interesting, despite the fact that this manuscript had been given as a gift by the monks at Bobbio to Pope Paul V in 1618 with a collection of 28 other manuscripts, nobody prior to Cardinal d'Angelo Mai had apparently ever noticed or cared that there was a second text written underneath. And it is absolutely fascinating to ponder just how many scholars had held this manuscript without noticing that they were actually holding one of the great lost works of Antiquity. The news of Mai's discovery spread quickly, and the reaction among scholars was one of pure joy. Only six days after he had informed Pius VII about the discovery, the Pope ordered Mai's letter to him to be published. And in 1820, Giovanni Leopardi, at the same time one of Italy's best philologists and best poets, wrote an exceedingly effusive tribute to Mai celebrating the fact that he had found the De Repubblica. In his letter to Pius VII announcing the discovery, Mai had noted that, quote, politics, jurisprudence, history, antiquarian studies, ethics, and good Latin have much to look forward to from the publication of this very important work of Cicero. However, it took Mai several years to publish his edition. And when it finally appeared in 1822, the De Republica became the last of Cicero's works to be published. Within a year of the publication of Mai's first edition, it had been reprinted in Germany, France, England, and even the United States, where Thomas Jefferson is known to have purchased a copy. A French translation appeared in 1823, an English translation in 1841. While some scholars, particularly in Italy and Germany, were disappointed in the fragmentary nature of the text, which they found repetitive and derivative from other Ciceronian works, It was nevertheless widely read and became a staple for studying the Roman Republic. Yet despite this wide dissemination, critical engagement with the text was slow to come. From 1847 to 1915, no critical editions were produced, despite the number of errors that May made in his manuscript, as he was no great scholar of Latin, and he had a lot of mistakes. In 1915, however, Conrad Ziegler published his first edition of the text changing many of Mai's errors, and this edition created a new basis for reconstructing the text and for studying it in a form closer than anybody has since Augustine's day. Ziegler's edition was followed by Giovanni Mercati's publication of the actual uh, manuscript in 1934. In 1966, Eberhard Heck finally, finally completed the work done by the uh, English scholars uh, in the 14th and 15th century. By publishing all of the references to the work in everybody else's works. But in 1984, the publication of Carl Buchner's critical edition <coughs> spurred a flurry of new interest in the De Republica. Buchner had argue, er, argued in an earlier paper that the De Republica may be called, in fact, central to the originality of Cicero's political thought, and his commentary finally cemented the work as central to any study of Republican politics. Since Buchner's commentary, no fewer than seven other critical editions uh, have appeared, five English translations, that's actually up to seven now, um, and countless articles from scholars across the field of classics, philosophy, history, and political science, where much, much, much interesting work is being done. And the last two decades in particular have seen a really strong resurgence in scholarly interest. And it's now that I would like to turn to the figure of the ideal statesman, which is, I think, the most important part of the political philosophy of the De Despite the judgment of Ronald Syme, the great British historian, who in 1939 dismissed the De Republica as a work about which too much has already been written, it seems there is, in fact, a lot more to be written about the De Republica. While much of what Cicero wrote about the cycle of governments, the inevitable circular transition of governments from monarchy to tyranny, aristocracy, to oligarchy, to democracy, to aquacracy, can be found in the work of the second century B.C. Greek historian Polybius is the figure of the ideal statesman that is the most interesting and, in fact, original part of Cicero's work. Cicero felt that the ideal statesman was central to any discussion of the Roman state, and the ideal statesman occupies books two, four, five, and 6 of the De Republica, at least as we understand the text of the Bible. The majority of books four and five are lost, uh, so much of what we have to deduce about The Ideal Statesman is a bit derivative from other works. But, though speculative, I think we can make some strong conclusions about, it, about The Ideal Statesman's duties and virtues. Now, given the philosophical nature of the Deer and the fragmentary nature of the text, most scholars have dismissed The Ideal Statesman as purely a philosophical construct with absolutely no practical applications. An influential article published in 1924 by the German classicist Richard Heinze set the tone for 75 years of research on the the ideal statesman. Heinze had argued that Cicero envisioned his ideal statesman as just a type of statesman, representing really any good man with good morals who would give uh, his service to the state. Heinze's article in fact stifled any work on the ideal statesman. And the two book-length works devoted to the ideal statesman, uh, published in the 1950s, one in Italian and one in Danish, treated it as a philosophical construct and nothing more. Ida's conclusions were reaffirmed in 1997 uh, by Jonathan Powell, and that seemed to settle the debate completely. However, scholars, particularly in the field of political science, began to question aspects of this thesis, especially the purely philosophical nature of the statesman. And in my book uh, on the ideal statesman, I argued that the ideal statesman was, in fact, more practical than philosophical, and that the ideal statesman was, in fact, Cicero's statement of practical politics. Scholars in general now, 20 years years in from Powell's article, no longer consider his work to be derivative, no longer consider it to be simply a copy of Plato or other Greek sources. And the originality of the text has come to the front. I believe that the De Repubblica in general, and the statesmen uh, more specifically, are a mature reflection on the state of the Roman Republic and its leaders. And this, the result of this reflection is a political treatise that, frankly, is sublime and long-lasting. It was both broadly applicable and deeply personal to Cicero. And because of this practicality and maturity, the ideal statesman is, I think, part of the work that should occupy our focus today. So who is the ideal statesman? Well, in book two of the, of the De Republica, Cicero provides a pointed definition of the statesman's virtues. And while it's a rather long, uh, long section, I think it's worth reading in its entirety, uh, so please bear with me as I read you my translation. And as happened with Tarquinius, not by having obtained a new power, but by using unjustly those powers which he already had, the tyrant overthrows the entire apparatus of the royal state. In opposition to this type of person is another man who is good and wise and experienced in the public welfare and the public authority, as if he were the tutor and guardian of the state, for such will he be called the director and helmsman of the state. Make sure that you recognize such a man, for he is the only one able to preserve the Commonwealth through his judgment and labor." Now, sadly, as you might imagine. The manuscript breaks off immediately at this point, and it seems about six pages of text are missing. So we have a little bit of a break here. So what do these five virtues that Cicero mentions, being good, being wise, experience, judgment, and labor, actually entail? To be good and wise, for Cicero at least, means possessing three virtues, wisdom in Latin, sapientia, Understanding, or prudentia, and Dignity, or autoritas. So more specifically, wisdom means a knowledge of civic governance influenced by Greek philosophy, especially ethics. Understanding means a comprehensive grasp of Roman law and Roman history. And Dignity indicates the traditional virtues of the aristocracy. And it is wisdom that Cicero ranks as the foundational virtue of his statesman. Possession of wisdom allows the statesman to use his understanding and his dignity on behalf of the state, as it bridges the abstract philosophical and specific practical aspects of statesmanship. In a more concrete sense, Cicero envisages, envisages, envisages the statesman as having a thorough knowledge of the law in order that he be able to uphold the existing body of law, especially those laws that are designed to prevent the rise of a tyrant or the rise of a fully democratic state. Wisdom, at its most basic level, is the fundamental mechanism for preserving Cicero's commonwealth. Now, Cicero, one of the most fervent believers in the sanctity of the Roman Republic and a zealous proponent of political life as the highest good, Preserving the commonwealth meant ensuring the influence of the aristocracy, as well as the sovereignty of the people, as both were critical for the success of the Roman political model. However, it is understanding of these virtues, it is understanding which is the most tangible and salient virtue of the ideal statesman, as understanding is the virtue that is inexplicably, inextricably tied to action. After the break in the manuscript, which follows the definition that you see here, Cicero defines the, the statesman as a vir prudence, a man of intelligence. And this intelligence, Cicero tells us, is made explicit by the, statements, the statesman's similarity to an elephant driver or the conductor of a musical group. The statesman will not be the fond of power, nor will he be the creator of law, nor a monarch who shapes the state in his own image, but rather the one who guides the mechanisms that move the state as an elephant driver drives a powerful elephant and one who balances the various constituencies of the republic to create a stable republic as a conductor balances its musical tones and instruments to create harmonious music what i didn't mention is cicero after uh, this beautiful metaphor of the elephant driver The implication being, when the Republic is going off the rails, that the elephant driver, as with an elephant that goes off the rails, simply drives a spike into its head and kills the elephant, and then starts again. This harmony, represented by, say, the conductor, is best represented by the concept of concordia. The state survives if the statesman can ensure that each constituency in the Republic fulfills its assigned duties, not so much in checks and balances, but each group does its job. So, this mention of Concordia lets us move now into a summary of the practical duties of the statesman. How does this actually work? Well, Cicero affirmed the belief in class distinction and would never have supported moves to ensure a political or monetary parity in the Republic. Rather, the statesman ensures that each constituency performs its part, ideally in consensus, but if not in consensus, then at least in a mutually agreed-upon functional harmony. How will the statesman ensure this harmony and stability? Put simply, and in a very broad organization, <coughs> the statesman must to preserve the state by any and all available means. This is admittedly extremely broad, and one that seems very fraught with equal potential to give rise to a tyrant as it does to preserve the mixed constitution of the republic. Given Cicero's strict adherence to the superiority of the aristocracy, one of the most obvious ways, it would seem, to ensure that tyranny and democracy would be suppressed would be to have a number of these ideal statesmen working at any given time. But this is not the case, because having a large number of equally endowed and esteemed men working at the same time would certainly lead to the same kind of factional violence that had led Cicero to write a comprehensive review of Roman statesmanship in the first place. Cicero envisioned a succession of statesmen, not a single monarchial ruler or council of statesmen, though only one rector could exercise his authority at any given time. This may be the point of the long metaphor at the end of Book One about the role of the sun in guiding the motion of the planets. Rather, as the political system, the Roman system, became more or less balanced, a single unique statesman would be required to restore the balance, to ensure the continuation of the Republican form of government, and to do so, and this is key, through existing and legal means. This is perhaps why Cicero uses one other common synonym for his ideal statesman, gubernator or helmsman. That is not to say that the rector would be required to act in concert with the Senate or the magistrates or by consent of the people. Cicero was very, very, very clear on the need for the ideal statesman to act unilaterally. But again, it should be stressed that the statesman acts only within the bounds of existing governmental structures and the existing body of law. He does not make the law. He cannot make the law. He cannot act above the law. It is simply through the statesman's leadership that every mechanism of the state is restored to working order with the assistance of, and the complete buy-in of, the various constituencies. There are two other interesting aspects of this statesman that I think are worth elucidating here, uh, before I finish up with some closing remarks. First, Cicero never envisioned his ideal statesman as having any sort of military responsibility, though presumably his dignity would allow him to have considerable influence in military affairs. It is possible, of course, leading the fragmentary manuscript, that the missing sections of the De Republica uh, did include a military role for the statesman. However, Cicero's later critiques of both Pompey and Caesar during the Civil War were rooted in their failures as political figures, not their failures as military commanders. Though I think we can say that Cicero viewed the latter as stemming from the former. The statesman is a political creature. There is no commander in chief role for him, perhaps for the obvious reasons that one man in charge of Rome's military could lead to the reestablishment of a monarchy, and in fact what Cicero believed happened with Caesar. The second interesting aspect of the statesman is that while Cicero may have been creating an ideal, in the surviving sections of De Republica, Cicero doesn't seem to entertain the idea that the statesman would ever fail, that he would not right the ship of state and end whatever crisis had necessitated the advent of a statesman. This may be because Cicero felt that the rector was only necessary in a crisis, and since Rome had continued to exist, despite its obvious flaws, that either Rome didn't yet require a statesman, or that a statesman would simply appear at the proper moment and do what needed to be done. There had been examples of these ideal statesmen in the past, and Cicero held Scipio Melianus, his main speaker in the Derritory, in particularly higher regard. Yet, despite Cicero's constant laments in the 40s that the Republic was dead and gone, he doesn't ever seem to have seriously entertained the idea that the Republic would ever be dead and gone. Yet, of course, Fall it did, and it, the Republican government that he fought so strongly to save. The De Republica, so in conclusion, the De Republica and, his ideal, and the ideal statesman are, I think, the keys for understanding all of Cicero's political philosophy. While the ideal statesman was, in fact, an ideal in the way that Plato's philosopher kings were idealized, Cicero nevertheless felt that his statesman was eminently practical. In the peroration of his masterful invective against Mark Antony, known as the Second Philippic, Cicero closed with this. The Roman people people has men to whom it can entrust the rudder of the ship of state. Wherever they are, there will be the security of the republic or, as it seems, the republic itself. Undoubtedly, the republic has defenders on guard, the most noble flower of our youth, and it probably means burgers and Cassius here. Let them go where they will out of consideration for the public weal. The republic will call for them when they are needed. Statesmanship, at least Cicero's ideal of statesmanship, was inextricably tied with the continuation of the republic. A real republic required real statesmanship, and no matter how idealized the republic and the statesman may have been in the De Republica, Cicero felt that they nevertheless provided a practical template for ending the political gridlock and indeed the civil war that had engulfed Rome in the last two decades of his life. Angela May's rediscovery of the De Republica 200 years ago has opened up countless new avenues for understanding Cicero's political philosophy, but it is only in the last two decades or so that the De Republica and the ideal statesman have been given significant scholarly attention. Much more surely needs to be done on both. But I hope that I've provided uh, today, I've provided you with some exposition and interpretation of this important work, and most importantly, given you some food for thought about Cicero and his political philosophy. Thank you.
0: It was that convincing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. I'm not a Latin scholar, but I'm curious as to why you translated oh uh, said...
1: Oof, that is a great question. Um, part of that is personal personal preference. Um, it can, of course, be authority, sort of in the, in the more common, I guess, translation. Um, one of the reasons I translated as dignity is because uh, the way that that because there's another word, dignitas, dignity, which is what Caesar uses when he has his justification for, for invading. Um, I think because Cicero, while he requires the statesman to be an aristocrat, he doesn't seem to think you could ever have some sort of populist leader, you know, of or, or, or something. That autoritas you know, being dignity is. Standing, that you could look to this person and say, this person is good, has good ideas. They have, they're, uh, they have moral standing to to do this. Morality is a huge part of the ideal statesman, um, as opposed to say reputation. It's going to be an aristocrat, but it doesn't seem to have to be an ex-consul or a. a political. It could be any senator. It could be anybody outside the senate from a noble family. Um, and now Toritas generally tied to sort of the Senate. Um, I think in many ways that the senators have authority. tons. But I use dignity because I think it's more widely applicable to anybody who might fulfill this role, as opposed to simply saying, I have authority uh, to do something with the, the total package of the person. That's a great question. Yeah, yes. During the latter part of the republic, uh, it seems like uh, elections and jury votes were often decided by bribery. Yes. Does uh, Cicero ever deal with that problem and suggest any problem? Um Not in the Republica, but he really—he was a <coughs> big fan of, uh, he actually proposed, I don't know how seriously, at one point, that uh, every person, if ever, a senator would be able to ask any person who they voted for and they'd have to show them their ballot um, as a way to, in theory, ensure integrity of elections. I'm not quite sure how that works. Um, but bribery yeah, was, was rampant, was absolutely rampant. Um, and he's strangely silent on that, I think, maybe because it would have had him one of the missing sections this idea of, well, the states would be above that and would inspire you by his leadership to not take the bribe? Perhaps. Um, but it was, you're absolutely correct. And in fact, many the, for about two years, you didn't actually have any elections at all. Uh, in 52, when the De Republica was published, um, Pompey had just served functionally six months as dictator, uh, not by name. Uh, because the Roman state was falling so badly. The elections couldn't be held because of bribery, electoral violence, uh, all this sort of stuff. Um, But bribery seems to just be so ingrained um, besides the lip service that you would pay as a a politician to say bribery is bad, electoral fraud is bad. um, But it helped me once. So, okay, I guess. Yes, ma'am. During Cicero's consulship, he is known
0: for his Executions Catalan, and it's interesting that he uh, lifts up the idea that the uh, person would be above that, uh, would follow the law. Mm-hmm. How does he justify what he did with Catalan? Because he f- I think
1: he felt he followed the law, that the, the Sinatus Consultum ultimum, despite not actually being law yet, it gets the force of law later, but it doesn't have the force of law at that time. I think he felt because you, have, you had a consensus of the Senate that, a consensus in, in whatever form he thought of, you had a consensus of the Senate and you had enough people outside of the Senate who were okay that this, this idea of consensus that he was always fighting for, he had it. Therefore, it wasn't illegal because the consent of the people and the Senate was there despite the quasi-legality of executing, well, the actual illegality of executing Roman citizens without a trial. Um, I think that's how he justified it. Uh, and I think that's why one of his big focuses in the 50s is on that consensus as a way to defend himself. That, yeah, I, I, I killed these guys. Um, I put these men to death. But consensus was there. I had a mandate, to maybe use a modern term. I had a mandate to do this. Therefore, it's OK. Do you think and,
0: that led to the sex-
1: later, partly, by Anthony and... <laughs> My, how much time do we have? Oh. Uh, <laughs> I think, I, long story short, I think Cicero was aiming for a fight. Um, I really, I, I think Cicero came back to the city head in the Civil War that he could be a beacon, that he could he could be the rector. I think he thought he would actually become the rector of public eye. Um, but that if I don't think he wanted to be a martyr. But if he could become the statesman, because everybody's supposed to recognize the statesman, and then he was cut down, that he would become more powerful than you could possibly imagine. Um, The little Star Wars quote there. Um, But I think that's how, uh, so Antony, and I think Antony is also just, I'm poisoned by the the sources against Antony. Um, But I think Cicero's picking the fight, and I think he I think he kind of poked Anthony with a stick and left times, and Anthony just said, We got here with him. Yeah? Um,
0: okay. So I guess now it makes sense that we're going we to talk about statesmanship. Sure. Can about that. Do you think, looking back, especially like over the 19th and 20th century, um, and you're like a German scholar, that mm-hmm. this interest in Cicero talking about statesmanship is like that in the historical the time?
1: Yes. I don't know that I have a really satisfactory answer to that, but I think yes. Um, in particular, a lot of times, it comes down to sort of a lot of times, if you like Cicero, if, if your scholarship, if your university system was kind of pro-Caesar, you couldn't really like Cicero. If you like Cicero, you could, so the French, for example, were very much pro-Cicero um, in, say, the late 19th century, early 20th. Uh, the Germans were very much pro-Caesar. Um, so, and I think reflecting this kind of societal differences, you know, egalite, or tribunal, and all that stuff. Um, versus sort of the, the militarism, the absolutism of Caesar's reign. Um, one of the reasons that Ronald Simon I mentioned August of nineteen thirty-nine publishes a book saying that dictators are bad and that Caesar is bad and Augustus is bad and meanwhile you have you know Germany. He's clearly looking at Augustus and Caesar in the frame of what's happening in Nazi Germany. Um, Conrad Ziegler, the one I mentioned in 1950, he later became he was very much a sort of proponent of um, equality. Um, he was. He was actually later in prison and stripped of his duties uh, for helping Jews during the Holocaust. Um, and so he founded a political party to opposed the Nazis and that sort of thing. So I think looking at this republicanism definitely clouded, not clouded, but influenced how he viewed the republic uh, and its influence. Um, I don't have a, a satisfactory beyond that, but it's a fascinating. It's a book that needs to be written. I think honestly is the how people who have said that the republic have. That influence what they've said maybe in their personal correspondence. Thank God for the email now. We can actually find this out. Um, and that sort of thing. To find out what they actually thought of their conference. Why did they get involved and what resonated with them. Um, what I think would be a fascinating book or an article. That's a great thing.